We are uh, in the middle of a series that we're doing called Exiles, and um, what we're doing through this series is that we're talking about what it means to be God's exiled people. Um, God had planned since the beginning of the world to ransom a people from the world to be his own possession, to be the, the, the people that he worked among and worked in and through, and that that people would be refined to such a degree that they would be a display to the rest of the world, not just to what they're like and what God's able to do in their lives, but to what God is like and what he has done through his son Jesus. And the more this happens to us, the more we actually go to the margins of our society, because the more that we look like the one who ransomed us and made us part of his family, the less and less we look like the world that we're from. And and so this process is happening for God's people, and it's happening uh, by his grace for us as uh, as we look to him. So this is a a series that we're doing through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. It's on page 840 if you want to check it out in the Bibles that are under the seats in front of you. Uh, But that's kind of where we are. Just to recap what we've done a little bit so far is that we have uh, been looking through the lens of what Peter is talking to these people through. And and Peter is saying, look, I want you to know your identity. Your identity is as God's exiled people, strangers in the world, but loved by Him. And so cling to Him. Know who He is and know who you are in Him because that's going to carry you through the day. And then he goes on to say, I've got a role for you in, in trials. And so there are going to be trials that come into your life, but don't worry, don't freak out, because those things are going to be used to refine your faith, to make it more glorious on the other end. So my plan is not to burn you up in the fire, but if your faith is in Christ, then it will refine you and you'll come to the end of yourself, and when you get through the trial, you'll realize that He was the only one that you could really depend on. And God wants us as His people to realize that He's the only one that we can depend on. He wants us to find our full identity in Him, and He wants us to know that He is the only one worthy of our trust. And so that is what God is doing. And I believe with everything in me that that's what God is doing through our own family situations and when we lose loved ones, that God is still at work doing that process in our hearts so that we would cry out to Him and find Him worthy of that trust. Um, And and so this morning, what we're doing is carrying on that uh, conversation, if you will, because I I want us as a community to to have the same things that Peter wants for his community when he's writing this letter, and that is to be equipped in every circumstance with our identity and with our hope founded in the right place so that we would carry out the mission that God has for us in every part of life. And and if you've been around for any length of time here, you know that we talk a lot about mission. And you may wonder why that is. Like, wouldn't it be easier if we just were part of a church that like let you come on Sunday and like hear a decent message and then go home and not have to like live it out all week? You know? (laughs) To get together with these people again throughout the week and to like love on my neighbors and my coworkers and actually implement this stuff in life, it'd be so much easier if that were the case. I know, right? He gets us. He really gets us. Maybe that means... Maybe that means he'll take it easy on us. I'm sorry. That... I'm just proving that I understand you, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to uh, take it a step further. We would be missing out on our calling as His people if we did that. We would miss out on who God created us and recreated us to be through His Son Christ. We would be missing out on all that God has for us to be and to do in the world and the blessing that comes by being a part of that mission, to see Him empower us, to see Him use us, to see Him fill us, to to reach out to people that don't yet know Him, and then by the Spirit of God, see them changed into a new person and come into His family. I mean, I hope that by the end of this series, you get so fired up, so pumped up about being on God's mission that you think, I would not sell my life out for any other calling but this one. 
That's really what I want for you. And that's the same thing that Peter wants for his community. And so we're going to continue the reasons why he wants that for them as we pick up in uh, 1 Peter 2, um, verses 4 through 12. So he says this to his community. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that is, those who don't yet believe, that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. The Peter, uh, throughout this letter, you, you probably noticed by now, is using all kinds of metaphors to talk about the people of God and their calling in the world and what they're to be about. He's sprinkling them everywhere. And and it's important for us to realize that those metaphors that he's calling upon, they would have been very familiar for the people that Peter is writing to. They would have known immediately what those things mean and go, aha, I see what it means to be part of God's people. I see what it means. Because they know what it means to be a living stone and to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation and God's possession. All these things... They would have been recalling all kinds of parts of their own story and their national history to go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that we're those people. But for many of us, because we don't live in that context, those metaphors are sometimes lost on us. We don't know kind of what they mean. So primarily what we're going to do today is look at some of those metaphors and what they mean and what they call us to so that it will result in us living a different kind of life. Because they're very, very important for us to get our minds around if we're going to understand our identity. And So the the two that we're going to look at today are living stones and royal priesthood. That's the reason for the the name of the message today. But over the next three weeks, we're actually going to kind of recap some of this as we go forward because what Peter does is he kind of lays out the plan for what it looks like And then he starts talking about very specific areas of life that were to apply the same plan to those areas. And so he talks to people who are indentured servants. And he talks to those people who are married. And he talks to those people who are in the midst of suffering. And he wants them to know all of these things ahead of time so that they might know how to live in those circumstances. And so we're going to talk about those over the next couple weeks. But, But first, what we need to get to is kind of these two ideas. The first one we're going to address is this idea of being living stones or a spiritual house. And essentially what that means is that the church is a spiritual house where God now dwells. It is the, the, the people among whom He literally, physically dwells on the earth. If you know anything about the story, uh, there, there was a place where God once dwelled. Do you remember the name of that place? contained in a place called Israel. What was the name of it? It was the temple, right? And Has anybody ever seen pictures of Israel or been to Israel where you kind of see the the mount that's left from that temple? That's literally what's left there from a temple which used to stand on top of it. And it was the holiest place, according to the Bible, on the entire earth. So those of you who know the story and kind of remember about the temple... What was the purpose of the temple? 
You remember? It was to house the ark, and what did the ark symbolize? The mercy seat where what happened? Okay, so God, God sits literally on his throne, and he is enthroned on the ark of the covenant, which is kept inside the temple, right? So if we were to summarize all of that, it would be the temple is the place where God dwells on earth. It is his physical throne, if you will. What's that? His palace. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. What else was the temple for? Yeah, animal sacrifices. What were those about? I mean, it's not just something fun you do on a Saturday night, right? Yeah, atonement for sin, right? And so the, the temple was the place where reconciliation happened between God and humanity. And so humans, having fallen from God's glory, having chosen life apart from Him, God is now working through a people to, to kind of reclaim His creation. And He's saying the only way that we can do that is if there's blood involved. Some, someone, something needs to give of their blood in order to atone for, to make up for, to reconcile over the, the mistakes and the sins that we've made which caused the separation from God in the first place. And so the temple was the place where people would come to offer sacrifices so that they might be reconciled to God and to be His people. And so Peter, drawing on this metaphor, he says this, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? Picture this temple sitting on a mountain in all of its glory. The place where God sits among His people. He is enthroned in that place. And it's the place where people go to in order to find reconciliation and forgiveness of their sins. You also, like living stones, are being built by God now into a spiritual house where He dwells today. Think of how radical that is. I mean, if you were walking around that day, I mean, this doesn't even compare, but think of the most impressive structure you've ever seen in your life. Got it? Picture in your mind? God is saying to you, as glorious as that is, it pales in comparison to what you are now because my Spirit dwells in you. That's pretty radical stuff, isn't it? That's the the kind of imagery that Peter wants his people to realize what they are. So why do you think he wants them to understand that? Why do you think he would want them to want us maybe even to see that picture and to get our minds around it that we would make this connection that that's us? Why do you think? To be empowered? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's great. Did you guys all hear that? The, the, if you read the, the story of the construction of the temple and all the detail that went into it to make sure it was exactly the way that God had planned it out to be because it could not be any other way for His glory to dwell there. God, in the same way, is building us into a spiritual house that He might dwell. He's giving us the same amount of detail and precision working His hands over His people to make them look like Him so that He could dwell in them. That's fantastic, isn't it? To know that God takes that much interest in your life. That He is honing you and crafting you to make you His own so that He can use you and dwell in you. Why else? Yeah, why would that be important that God would want his people to know that he no longer dwells in a temple made by human hands, but he dwells in hearts. Why do you think? 
yeah, the temple's about to go away, right? And Jesus predicted that, and so they're going to be out of luck if their hope and their faith is still in that stone. Why else? Yeah, where are they? We've talked about this over and over again. They're scattered throughout modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor. And so you probably got a lot of people who are thinking to themselves, man, wouldn't it be great if we could just get ourselves back to Jerusalem? You know? Like, we're way the heck out here and who knows where, doing our, our thing out here and being on mission for God. And Man, it would be better for us if we could just hop on a horse or a donkey and get ourselves back to Jerusalem so that we could behold the glory of God in a building. And Peter's going, no, 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 you don't understand. The glory of God now dwells in you. I mean, this is great application, right? For those Because sometimes our mindset can still be that of God dwells among us when we're in a building with a steeple on it. And we happen to be in a building with a steeple on it, right? And, and sometimes we can get into this mindset that somehow God zaps the steeple down into the building to make His presence known. And, and, and it's more important for us to be in a location than it is for us to be as people everywhere. Can you see how this is challenging that idea? So, so what he's saying is, I, I, want to, I want this plan to come about where God is actually using His people to be a living, breathing, moving display of His glory on earth. It's, this is a, a, an exercise I'd like to do to kind of illustrate that. To make it, kind of help you to see why He might have planned for, for us to do this. So, Let's start out by doing this. Can I have like the halfway down the aisle and three rows back? You guys stand for a second, okay? Now, now picture in your minds that this is the way that God used to work through a temple, okay? And so this is the people of God. You are the chosen few, right? The ones that God has ransomed from the world to be His people, to be His his display to the world, declaring what He's like and showing Him by the way that you live your lives. Now, if you guys, the rest of you, are the world, right? we are the world, we won't sing the song, but we're the world, what do you guys need to do in order to experience God's presence? You need to go to them, right? So if they exist over here, you guys are out of luck way in the back of the room unless you've got some, some way to get over here. Right? <laughs> Don't ruin my illustration, James. Don't. <laughs> okay, now you guys can sit. And so now, the, the new way that God is working in the world is that He's taking a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Every language. He's ransoming to Himself through His Son, Jesus. And He's scattering them all across the world that they might be a display for Him. So now, let me ask that everybody who's in a life group or leading a life group, will you stand? What's the difference that you see with this picture? Is everybody almost within arm's reach of somebody who's standing? Now before you guys sit down, I I want you to get this picture into your mind that this is exactly the way that God had planned for His people to be in the world. A scattered people who, who are sent among those people in the world to display, to display and de- declare what He's like to every person who ever lived. Okay, you guys can sit down. Do you see the difference between those two things? And so for us, we need to be kind of mindful of the way that God is working because it's really easy for us to say and to get ourselves fooled into thinking that the church is only happening when we get together in this place. And, and in order for somebody to experience the church, we need to get them into the building. So you guys down in that corner, you need to travel to this building down in this corner in order to experience God's presence. You see how Peter is challenging that idea to its very core. He's saying, no, 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 you are the people of God, and so I, I want you to know that you are scattered among the neighborhoods and the workplaces of South Jersey 
to be My people, indwelled by My Spirit, to show what I'm like to all who live. That's My purpose. That's why I ransomed you from the world. And, and that's why as a church, we talk so often about being a people who are the people of God in the everyday. And not just on Sunday mornings. And not just when our small groups gather. And, and those things. Those things are good things and we need them to be equipped, to be trained, to be encouraged, to, to worship, to, to fellowship with one another. All those things are necessary. But the gravitational pull of a church, and I've been in a few, so I've got a little bit of experience. Maybe you have too. The gravitational pull of a church is always towards being with one another and not in the world. Let's, let's add stuff to our schedule so that we could see one another more. right? Let's use the building more because, hey, it's standing there. We might as well fill it every day of the week. You see how this begins to happen, and it's done many times with, with very, very, very good intentions. So don't get me wrong on that. But you can reach a tipping point where you start to implicitly say to yourself and to one another, God is with us more when we're in a certain place in a certain time. And that's just not true. And that will actually defeat, at a certain degree, the mission that He has us on to actually be people who dwell among those who don't yet know Him. Because the more that you're in this building, the less you're in your neighborhood. The, the more you're doing Christian activities, the less you're doing activities with those people who don't yet know Him. And we are to be living stones who carry the presence of God into the world. You may never hear another pastor say this, and I hope, I hope that you do. And there are a few that are saying it. But God's primary goal is not to fill a building. God's primary goal is to fill the earth with His glory. And God is using us as His living stones scattered among South Jersey to do just that. That's why He's ransomed us. That's how He's made us His. So that we would walk in that way. And there's a great picture of this that happened. Uh, This idea of living stones would have been very present for the people that Peter is talking to. They would have known these things because to set up monuments would have been a common everyday experience in that time. See, what's happened since kind of the history of forever is that when one group of people does something grand and great, and usually to conquer another group of people, they would set up a monument of stones. They'd kind of stack some stones together to declare to those who would pass by the glory of those people. And so you'd come to a certain place where a battle was fought and you'd see this stack of stones that looks pretty impressive and you'd go, huh, I wonder why somebody stacked those things up. And then somebody who knew the story would say to you, let me tell you the story of how great these people are. Every society does this, by the way. Mesopotamians did it. The Romans did it. Uh, we here in America do it. Can you think of some of the stones of remembrance that we have set up as a society that declare to the rest of the nations the glory that is America? Yeah. Have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? I mean, take a bus tour and see all the monuments that are set up, right? To our greatest presidents and to those who gave their life in Vietnam and to I mean you can you can stack up those what was another one that no longer exists it used to live exist in downtown New York City the world what is that a monument to to wealth and, and prosperity and the American way and capitalism and free market system it was such a powerful set up remembrance of, of the glory of a people that another people came along and said the best way to defeat their will is to knock down that stone of remembrance. You see how important those things are? You see why they're, they're integral to a society. And so they would have been recalling this because it was very common in their day to use this term of a living stone. Particularly, though, there's one story that you might recall. When the people of Israel have been 
ransomed out of Egypt. And they're now, they've been in the desert for 40 years. They're getting ready to cross into the promised land that God was about to give them. And so they come up with the Ark of the Covenant where God was, His presence dwelled with His people. And they came to the Jordan River. I don't know if you remember this story or not, but it comes in Joshua 4. The people come to the river and they say, how in the world are we going to get all these people across? And one of them comes up with the crazy idea of, well, you know, 40 years ago, God parted the Red Sea. Maybe He'll hold back this river too so that we can cross on dry ground. And sure enough, that's what happens. They pray to God. God comes in His presence and He holds back the river. And so they... The whole nation crosses through on dry ground. And the, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence is dwelling, is kept right in the middle of it to show and to demonstrate to the people the fact that God was the one bringing them across. God was the one that was doing this. He is to be glorified for this very reason. And, and if you remember, once they get across the other side, it's not like, okay, well, that was really cool. Let's keep on trekking. There's something specific happens. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Take 12 people, each one from one of the 12 tribes of this nation now called Israel, and go back into the river and pick up the heavy river stones from the bottom of that river and haul them on your shoulders up onto the banks of the river and set them up in this stone of remembrance so that every time somebody passes by and they ask the question, what happened here on that day? You would say to them, let me tell you the story of how we passed through this river on on dry ground. Let me tell you what God has done for those who are His people. Do you see what He's doing? So His people are no longer to be stones of remembrance for their own glory, but whose glory? God's glory, right? Let me tell you what kind of person I used to be. Let me tell you the wreck that I once was before Jesus came and opened my eyes. We're to be a people scattered to declare the glory of God. So Peter gives us a a, a metaphor for how this is going to take place. So that was living stones. Let's look at this idea of being a nation of priests, a a royal priesthood. He says, the purpose of that house, that spiritual house of living stones is so that you would be a nation of priests. Those of you who know the story, what were the priests to do? Yeah, they were the ones who performed the sacrifices for the people. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that they had unique access to God and they were to go into the presence of God in order to make reconciliation for those who could not go into the presence of God. Does that make sense? They were the, the mediators, as it were, between the rest of the world and the very presence of God. And so Peter says this about us, about His people. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. So bring that imagery into the conversation. You are to be the ones who go into the presence of God and who reconcile those who don't yet know Him to Him. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Were you once in darkness? If you, if you didn't, if there was a time in your life when you did not know Christ, and I'm assuming that's true of all of us, then the answer is yes. And God, by His mercy, made us His people and ransomed us from that dark existence into His wonderful light. And so we should be a people who declare it. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. At the core, here's what a priest is. A priest is someone who represents people before God. So in Israel, uh, the priest would go in before God and they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people 
so that their sins would be atoned for by the blood of an animal. So a priest is someone who actually intercedes on behalf of another person. The Hebrew says, of course, that we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, who has done this for us. And it says this, Therefore, we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet without sin. So what makes Jesus the perfect priest? One, He perfectly has access to the Father, right? There's no one in history who's had that kind of access to God. He has it always and all the time, perfect access before God. And at the same time, what does He also have? Yeah, perfect empathy, right? He perfectly knows what it's like to live a human existence. That's what makes him the perfect priest. Before, you had priests who knew what it was like to be human, but they had limited access to God. In fact, the only one that had access, full access, was the high priest, and there was only one day a year that he could actually experience the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt. How often does Jesus have access to God? All the time, right? And yet He perfectly knows what it's like to be us. So let me ask, isn't it good to have a priest who knows both of those things? Who lives perfectly before the Father and yet perfectly knows your own heart and perfectly intercedes for you in every situation? You think of how often uh, you pray for those that you love. Now know that Jesus prays infinitely more for you. I mean, the most powerful one who's ever existed lives and breathes to intercede for you as your great high priest. That's good news, right? That's really good news. And so what Peter is saying is he's calling the church, us, the people, to be a royal priesthood. Meaning that we are the ones who God has called to Himself in order to function in the same role that Jesus does for us. And so as Jesus is for us, so we should be for those who don't yet know Jesus. So let me give you an example. As Jesus has welcomed us into God's house and made us His family, so we should be the ones who welcome in our neighbor and treat them as if they're our family, even though they're not. You see how that works? Jesus is our priest. We are the priests that God has called to be a nation among the people, to declare and show what He's like. So if you've never had an unbeliever at your dinner table, you're not fully believing that Jesus actually reconciled you into God's family. Your dinner table, in a sense, is a declaration of your belief that Jesus is everything that was necessary to bring you into His family. So why would I not open my table to those who don't yet know Him? Even if they trash my stuff and are rude and don't particularly smell great. I don't don't know. I'm just giving examples here. (laughs) Why would we not do that? It's because we don't really believe that we're part of God's family and that Jesus was our great reconciler. As Jesus brought reconciliation, so we should be peacemakers for those who are in conflict. Let me ask, do you know two co-workers who don't particularly like one another? If you work anywhere, the answer is yes, if there are more than two or three people there. God is calling you, be my peacemaker in there. Because I have made peace between you and the Father. Why would you not lay your life down to bring reconciliation to those who hate one another? See how that works? As Jesus is our advocate, so we should be an advocate for those who are helpless and defenseless and who have no one to stand up for them. Who among you is the forgotten? Is the one who has no one to say on their behalf, people care for me? 
We are the ones whom God has called to be in the world, to advocate for those because Jesus is our great advocate. When we were condemned in sin and, and should have been given the penalty for it, Jesus stepped in and He took our wrath upon Himself and He says, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. When's the last time you've advocated for somebody that has no advocate? See, we are God's royal priesthood. And so we should be that, those priests at work and at home and at every place that God calls us to be. But see, unlike priests who lead people to God by rituals, we are to be priests who lead people to God by the quality of our lives. And so that's why Peter goes on to say, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among those who don't know me that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Another way to say that would be to live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. If someone were to watch your life and come to a conclusion that they could live it apart from the power of God in your life, then you seriously need to revisit the quality of your life. So let me ask this. What, what do you think keeps us from being that priesthood? I mean, just let's have like a really open, honest discussion. What do you think are some of the things that keep us from being that kind of priest in the world? Self-centeredness. How would that get in the way? Yeah, in a sense, we're declaring our own glory rather than the glory of the one who ransomed us out of darkness. What? Rejection. Being ostracized. What, what did you say, Doug? Being judged. Yeah. It, we're afraid, right? Afraid of what people might think of us if we were to point the quality of our life to one that wasn't us? Sometimes you, 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 know, you, you feel maybe the, the leading of the Spirit to do it, and you think, if I do it, they're going to think I'm totally nuts. You know? What is that really, though? I mean, what are we really doing? In a sense, we're placing the opinion of the people that are around us higher than the opinion of the one who ransomed us. Yeah, what else keeps us? How so? How would it be different? Another way to say that would be that we're basing our, the quality of our life in our own righteousness rather than the one that ransomed us. There was a group of people in Jesus' day that thought they needed to be the ones who lived their life in a perfectly constructed way. And the only way to really do that was to separate themselves from the rest of the, the people that weren't holy. Do you know who those people were? The Pharisees, right? Did Jesus have nice things to say about them? No. But they thought they were holy. They even had a separate entrance into the temple just so they wouldn't have to walk among the other people of the day. Because they thought if they rubbed up against them too much that they'd become unholy. As God's priest, though, He's calling us, I want you to be accessible to those who don't yet know Me. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be mine. Find your identity in Me and trust Me enough that I can use you in a powerful way so that the world won't rub off on you, but you'll rub off on it. And one of the things that I'm convinced of is that, I think as Pam was saying, and this is my own kind of struggle just to let you in on my world, is that I want to I live the kind of life that declares a dependence on no one but me. I want to be independent of everything and everyone. That's what my kind of lie is in terms of being a, a, 
a, living a, a good quality of life. And, and that's, I think, why Peter starts off this whole section by talking about what's necessary for us to be this priesthood of living stones. He said the, the only way that God's going to fulfill this purpose in us is when we come to the living stone. Peter assumes that you cannot become this living, breathing embodiment of of what God's like if you don't come to Jesus first. And that's why he says, as you come to Him. As you come to Him. He starts off this whole thing with that phrase. The living stone rejected by men, but precious to Him. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. If you know anything about building in that day, what they would do is that they would take a cornerstone or a capstone among all the other stones. And so as people are assembling all the stones that are going to make up this building, there is an architect who is walking through all of these stones, looking for the precious stone. He's saying, I I, I need a stone in which I can orient every other stone to it because it is precious and perfect in its proportions and its orientation and its angles and and the quality of the stone. It's not going to break apart. And so he's going through this massive sea of stones looking for the precious cornerstone. And when he finds it, he says, that's the one I'm going to build my building around. And so he takes it from all the other stones and he sets it in place where the building is about to be built and he orients it in the right direction. And then what does he do with all the other stones? Does he scatter them about? He brings them all to the cornerstone. He brings every other stone, all the imperfect ones, all the ones with, with wrong angles and that are brittle and broken and, and misshapen, and he brings those to the cornerstone and he starts to chisel away at them so that they might line up to it. And he orients their direction towards it and begins to build from it this massive structure which would testify to the glory of the architect. What Peter is saying is, if we're going to be this declaration of what he's like, of what the master architect is like and his ability to work in the world, we need to be people. We need to be living stones that come to the living stone and who allow our lives to be oriented and directed by him. We need to be people who line up the stone of our life towards him to allow the architect to shave away parts that don't line up with him so that we might be built up into the people that God wants us to be to declare what he's like to the world. If we're not reflecting God's purpose of being that beautiful declaration of him, it may be because we're not coming to the living stone or basing our life upon Jesus. One of my greatest fears as a parent let you into my world a little bit. I don't worry a whole lot about Caleb going uh, to the right school. Maybe I'm just not at that point yet. Uh, I don't worry a whole lot about the kind of friends he's going to make when he gets to school. I don't worry a whole lot about um, whether or not he's going to get a good job. I don't even worry a whole lot about his health, to be perfectly honest with you. You know what I worry about? I worry that Caleb is going to grow up and see in his father someone who needs to be dependent on no one. Let let that sink in for a second. I worry that Caleb is going to grow up to be someone who has no functional need for God in life because he's seen it in his father. I want to ask you, This is the key question for me. The one that's been ringing in my ears for probably the last few months. If someone were to imitate your way of living, 
would it lead them to depend on themselves or on Jesus? I'm going to say it again because it's really important. You, who are the priests of God, living stones taken from the world to be His declaration, if someone were to follow your pattern of life, if someone were to follow you around throughout the week, would it lead them to conclude that their life needs to be one that's dependent on themselves and themselves only? Or would it lead them to cry out to Jesus for Him to be the one who's dependable upon? I think that's the question that we need to wrestle with. Because I, I want Caleb to see in his parents an existence that requires Jesus to be the most precious thing in our world. To see in his parents people who fall woefully short of God's glory and who cry out to Him knowing just how much we need Him for life and existence. Let me ask, is Jesus becoming the most precious thing in your world? Are you saying to yourself, the thought of living my existence without Him and the daily grace that He brings in His activity in my life causes me to weep with despair. Is that happening for you? Do you give Him credit for where you are or where you know you should be but you aren't? Some of us, I think, myself included, we're pretty fond of Jesus. You know, we're glad that He paid the penalty for our sin and we think He's a good teacher and model for our lives. We like it when He gives us the desires of our hearts, but we aren't desperate for Him because we still trust in ourselves for most of our lives. I think to be desperate for Him is to say, if Jesus were not the cornerstone of my life, if my life were not becoming more oriented towards Him, then my, the building of my life would fall down. I'm an utter wreck without Him. He is more precious than I can say. Incidentally, kind of aside, this is why you'll never hear me say, go and be Jesus to someone. Because only Jesus is Jesus. And we need Him. And it's actually when we begin to live a life that requires His existence, when we step out of our comfort zone and and allow ourselves to be used as living stones and begin to speak with our mouth to those people who don't yet know Him in such a way that they would connect the dots that the way we live our life is because we're dependent on Him and not on ourselves. When you start to do this in the everyday life, start to be a priest to those who don't yet know Him and open up your home to them and your lives to them, you will need Jesus more than you imagine. Mandy and I were talking about this just last night as we were kind of recapping the sermon. And um, we both got to a point where we go, if it weren't for making some of the decisions that we've made to, to allow ourselves to be more accessible to those who don't yet know God, there are areas of our hearts that we would still be convinced are conformed to Him, but in reality are not. Like, I thought I was a patient person until I started to let some of my neighbors use my kitchen. You know? <laughs> Have mercy. You, you think you listen well until you get into a conversation with somebody that is from a different world than you, and you need to really listen to both them and the Spirit to hear what God would have you say in response to them. And I thought I knew how to listen to God, but, but when I'm put in this reality, I realize how fall I short from that standard. And that's the grace of God in our lives. Because when we get to that point, we cry out to Him and we say, God, I need You. Will You come and fill me? Reorient my life. I'm seeing parts of this stone of my life that are more of a testament to myself than to You. Will You shave those off? My life seems to be heading in a direction 
which will ultimately glorify me and not you. Will you turn that stone so that I'm aligned to Jesus and what He wants to do? Would you do that for me? Unless you come to Jesus, you won't know the answers to those questions. And unless you step out in faith to be His priest in the world, you won't know how much you actually need Him. And we do need Him. We need Him for everything. He is the precious cornerstone. So let's go to Him in prayer and ask that He'd fill us, okay? Jesus, I just I feel prompted to say as we begin to pray together that we love you. You're more precious than we can say. And yet I know even right on the heels of that, God, that you you remind me that it's it's you who revealed yourself to us. It's you who pursued us and who redeemed us by your mercy. It's you who brought about the knowledge that we were in need in the first place. And so, God, I I pray for those of us that see it, that know how precious you are, that that we would find in you the perfect cornerstone. Reveal in our lives areas that need to be shaved or, or pruned away. Reveal to us directions that we're taking steps towards that need to be reoriented because you'd have us change to be part of your spiritual house. And for those of us that don't see and know, who haven't tasted and seen, as the Bible says, how good the Lord is, that Holy Spirit, you would bring about a revelation of how good you are. You are the perfect stone. So we align ourselves to you. We ask that you'd come and you'd fill us in our time of need. And so we cry out to you in worship, asking that you'd be everything that we do need. And that we would go from here being everything that you call us to be. We ask for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.